Amen. Hallelujah, indeed. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And today we want to focus specifically on verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 through 12. That is the text before us today. Let me read it for us and then we will pray. This is what God's Word says. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that they may be abased. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we feel the need today to cry out to You and say, O Lord, Abba Father, keep us in Your grace. Hide us, Lord, in Thee. Hide us, Lord, in the cleft of the rock. Keep us safe that we might find refuge in You. And Lord, we're so grateful for the promise that we just sang, that You are faithful to Your people, and so saints are kept from final falling. Oh, we may fall, we may fail, we may, we may fall over on the course of faith, but by Your sovereign and majestic hand, You will lift us up again so that we can run anew, run afresh, setting our eyes on Jesus as we run the race that is set before us. Because we realize and we understand, O Lord, that there is a day coming, a day of reckoning, a day in which Jesus Christ will arise to judge the living and the dead. And so, Father, we pray, help us to heed the warning of Scripture here and help us to understand only how this Warning of judgment is but a greater illustration of the greatness and the beauty of Your grace in our lives. Thank You for the Lord Jesus through whom all these things are brought to us. And we ask that You would bless our, t- our time together. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and give me a mouth to speak and give us all wisdom to discern. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, Even as we've been looking at this wonderful book and in this particular chapter, we saw verses 1 through 5 how in that preceding context we were given a vision of the exaltation of God's kingdom there understood through Zion and therefore we were given a certain reality with an exhortation and the exhortation was that in light of the exaltation of Zion, we were to walk in the light, the light of God's law, the light of God's word, the light of God's wisdom. And so here too, in the same way, Isaiah returns to present sort of the dismal state of affairs and what's going on with the nation with yet another exhortation, this time in the negative. So the positive would be, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the negative now will be, verse 22, 
Stop regarding man. That's a big exhortation because that's sort of the sinful tendency of the nation. That's why they're in trouble. Because they keep trusting man and not God. So the heart of the passage, though, is found right here. Verses 10 through 12. You say, well, how do you figure? Well, um, not just because I like it, (laughs) but because exegetically there are parallels that are repeated in the text. So you have the repetition of the phrase, the Lord alone will be exalted. And the phrase about entering into the rocks, entering into the caves, hiding from the presence of the Lord, repeated again. Verse 19. Those repetitions tell us that at the heart of this passage here is a warning of the impending judgment of God. And therefore, Isaiah is going to shift away from the ideal, verses 1-5, through meaning the ideal is Israel restored, a Zion exalted, a, a, a heavenly state come down, realized, enjoyed. Now, back to real life, in this, well, back to reality in the present. And in the present, Judah is in trouble. And so he comes back down to focus on what is really going on. And in Isaiah's message, everything will be put right. But when everything is put right, universally and eschatologically, it will entail the subjugation of all mankind. So that's how extensive Isaiah's vision goes here. And the rest of the text, the rest of this chapter, chapter 2, the focus is judgment, not redemption. But as with every major section in the book of Isaiah, um, judgment never seems to have the last word. That's glorious, isn't it? And so, in this section, we want to emphasize the universal terror of judgment, the universal humiliation of man, the universal exaltation of God, and the universal call of the gospel. It's the way I structured the text. But first, just a quick word on Isaiah and what we can call messianic eschatology. Messianic, because we cannot get to the full-orbed intent of the text until we reach the messianic level, as we've seen already throughout our exposition in this book. It's not until we reach the messianic level that we really understand all that is implicated in the words and the vision and the prophecy that Isaiah has. So not only does Isaiah foresee a time in which God will judge the enemies of Judah and their immediate history, their immediate context, Assyria, Babylon, just like he did with the Egyptians, but also their historical situation forms the basis for which this even exaggerated metaphor passes into apocalyptic reality at the end of time through Jesus Christ at His coming. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Because this same imagery is found in, that's found here in Isaiah, it's found also in Hosea chapter 10, same imagery. This passage before us, then, is ultimately fulfilled at the second coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ, the parousia judgment of Christ, 
And that's what Revelation is talking about. Now, notice Revelation's use of the allusion or alluding back to this Asianic text. Revelation 6.15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, every slave and free man. Here we go. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day, that's Isaiah's day, that's his day of reckoning. The great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? I'm not going to develop much of the eschatology there towards the end of this in Revelation, but I just point out to you a small biblical theology detail. In verse 15 here, Revelation, what I'm suggesting is that the kings of the earth, and here, here it is, the great men, I think that is the mighty men that you find throughout the Bible that I have defined as the men, the people in power who have the ability, the capacity to shape global and future events. Uh, that's what I think this is all. So who would be a mighty man? Well, we saw the mighty man uh, there was mentioned in, in Genesis uh, chapter uh, uh, 10 with uh, Nimrod and Shinar. He was a mighty hunter, right? Which is a negative connotation in the context because he's building a tower in Shinar, which is Babel. And Babel becomes the paradigm for Babylon. And so later on, all throughout the prophets and all throughout redemptive history, you have these mighty men that arise on the scene. Pharaoh is a mighty man. The king of Tyre. The king of Babylon. Right? The king of Assyria. All of these. Nebuchadnezzar. These are the mighty men. And then the Roman Empire. And then all the kings that Daniel sees. And uh, on and on. See why I can't focus on this because we'll end up in Daniel or something. Go into a whole thing. But, but, but that's not my point. My point is just to say that this is all funneling into the final great cataclysm that Isaiah sees and foresees. The final and full exaltation of God, therefore, and the universal abasement of man will not be fully realized until Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus Christ is God's end-time servant, redeemer, and consummator. He will come. At the, point, the appointed time, the Scripture says, to judge the world in righteousness. Oh, and by the way, to help us hermeneutically, since we're in the Old Testament, praise the Lord, but we're, since we're in the Old Testament, understand from a point of hermeneutics and Christology, from the point of Christ and all of Scripture, the student of the Bible needs to envision Jesus walking through the corridors of the books of the Old Testament And as he walks, he has to be seen as creator, redeemer, and consummator. So that what we see as he walks through the Old Testament is that these images of the Son of God in the Old Testament represent Jesus' person and work in one of those modes in his pre-incarnate activity upon the stage of redemption. So for example, Jude 5 which I agree with the textual variant there that says, Jesus led a people out of Egypt. You read your Bible like that? Jesus led a people out of Egypt. So there you go. 
There is Jesus in His pre-incarnate activity working to deliver His people as Redeemer. Phenomenal and amazing. And that's what I think Luke chapter 24 is talking about. Verse 26, verse 20, uh, 44. So then the terrible judgments that are talked about here by Isaiah, they, will, they had their historical fulfillment But they will have their future fulfillment in and through Jesus Christ. And this will be what Paul calls in 1 Thessalonians the realization of the great and terrible day of the Lord when he returns. And this will obviously be the way it works out. First, there will be a universal terror of judgment. You see the text there? Verse 10, end of the rock, hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord The terror, and what's interesting here is that the terror that is spoken about here is brought about by what is good and beautiful and glorious in God. You notice that? It's the terror of the Lord, and you might have expected something like the terror of the Lord and the fierceness of His anger or something like that. But no, look at the, it's what it says. The, Lord, the terror of the Lord from the splendor of His majesty. You know, if we would have seen that text in a different context, something like this. Worship the splendor of His majesty. Make perfect sense to us. Because the splendor of His majesty, for those who are in Christ, is a beautiful thing. It is the beatific vision. It's what we will enjoy for all eternity. But that same glory, that same beauty, that same brightness of the Lord for us is beautiful. For the unbeliever, it is terror. Nothing worse than to have to meet a good God on the day of judgment. Nothing worse than to have to meet a holy God on the day of judgment. A God of splendor and majesty. Isn't that remarkable? And so, the terror, the dread, is not something that is brought about by anything that is to be conceived of as monstrous in God. It is not because of any sort of frightening attribute of God due to some unpredictable hair-trigger wrath of God. It's not what it is. It's that God is so holy, so majestic, so righteous, that when you are unrighteous, unholy, unsanctified, and in the future, unglorified, it will be the greatest threat to your soul. The more of the holiness of God that man sees, the more of his righteous indignation that God demonstrates, the more man will fear God. That's why it is totally illogical for an unbeliever to say, if God is good, why doesn't he come and take care of that? Natural disasters, famine, poverty, all these things. Yet they don't know what they're asking. Why didn't he go and deal with all the injustice in the world? You know not what you ask. Because when God comes, He will not just punish the sins you hate, but He will punish all of the sins in the world, including the sins in your heart. Here, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So just a little rewind because I just got out of Thessalonians. But you go back to 2 Thessalonians. This is really the crux interpretum of the whole issue. 
This is the passage right here that sort of captures the dynamics of what we're seeing, what we're reading, what we're talking about here in terms of the holiness of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God being something that the church will revel in and something that the world will dread and will hide from. And you know this text, 2 Thess 1.6. I tell you what, it's passages like this that remove from the conversation the evangelical church, that we need to make God a little bit more acceptable, that we need to sort of domesticate Him a little bit, contextualize Him a little bit, modernize Him a little bit, because, you know, if you just keep quoting the prophets and all their judgment talk, you're going to lose the people. Well, guess what, people? The people are already lost. Okay? You can't lose them. They're already lost. Uh, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. Why? The world is already condemned. And so... And so Paul, I guess, is not listening to modern-day evangelicals. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he speaks like Isaiah. Matter of fact, G.K. Beale suggests that Paul sees himself as something of an Asianic prophet himself. Sort of kind of like, like embodies a lot of what Isaiah... Anyway, that's another study. But look at what he says, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. What's he talking about? Persecution. Remember at the founding of uh, Thessalonians, you look at uh, Acts chapter uh, 17, right? Going, uh, going there, what happens is he, he, he starts a little house church. They start up, they're meeting in Jason's house. What happens? The magistrates, the people in the town, everybody goes after the house church. They grab Jason, his friends, throw him in jail. So they're being persecuted for the faith. And so Paul here is seeking to comfort this little church. And he says to them, to give you relief. To you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. So now here comes the storm chariot of God's wrath. Here comes this impending doom from above in flaming fire from heaven, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Oh, how popular it is today in our own culture. Oh, I know God. I love God. I'm, I'm a, I have a Christian background. God bless. As if that sort of moralistic, therapeutic badge of honor is going to get you into heaven. I mean, it's all around us, this kind of language. But notice Paul's emphasis on obedience, right? Why? Because obedience is the proof of the pudding. In other words, it's the proof that there is actual faith that has taken root. So no root, no fruit. But if there's fruit, there's probably a root. And so you've got to conform to the gospel. You can't just give it lip service to the gospel. And so he will come to deal out retribution. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. See that? The glory of His power is what we as Christians marvel at. We gaze at. We, we revel in that. We rejoice in that. We are lifted up in that. As you're worshiping, I hope you're thinking of the glory of God. And that causes you to rise up in your heart with praise and thanksgiving. But the very thing that causes thanksgiving in us will cause dread for them. For the church, when He comes, He'll be glorified in His saints. Watch this now. On that day. 
I'm suggesting that day is the same day that Isaiah is talking about. A day of reckoning. The Lord will be exalted, Isaiah 2.11, on that day. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. On that day, which is the second coming. To be marveled at among all who believed. That's what it is. This universal terror is also compounded by the fact that God will humble the world in a certain way. So universal terror of judgment leads to universal humiliation and subjugation of man. Tell you what I'm talking about. Turn to two places in your Bibles. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And Philippians chapter 2. Because it is not that God is simply out to punish the world for its sin. It's not just the suffering and judgment. You don't just suffer the loss of worldly pleasure. He doesn't want to just show the world the banality of carnal pursuits, the emptiness of sin, the emptiness of life apart from God, devoid of God, or even to punish their sin. It's more than that. It's more than that. This universal humiliation of man, abasement of man, will be realized only when there is a universal, listen now, recognition and confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself that the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and it will not turn back to, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. That's where Israel had gone astray. They thought righteousness and strength can come either from ourselves or from our alliances with other people, with nations. Men will come to Him, and all who were angry at Him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Now, Paul picks up right where Isaiah leaves off. In Philippians chapter 2, if you had your finger there, what is, you know this text so well. You know this it's all this great end time, future, cataclysmic upheaval, all finally, ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, For this reason, because He humbled Himself, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Think about that. And those who, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, you can go hide in the rocks all you want. You will be uncovered. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. This is exactly where Paul is getting this language from, from Isaiah. And what this means, brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is why I said it is a universal humiliation of man, a, hu- a-, a abasement of man to everyone who spurns the Lord today, to every faithless heathen, to every apostate backstabber of Christ. All will bow before they burn. That's the reality. 
Oh, the worst lie I think the church ever swallowed was that whatever you want to be in the evangelical church, you don't want to be a fire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> it's like, okay, which pages of my Bible should I rip out first? I mean, it's everywhere. The judgment of God, and this is why people don't fear God anymore. Those who will not willfully bow, having their hearts melted and subdued by His grace, will bow before they burn and confess before they are condemned that Jesus is Lord. Something relevant right now. With the rise of social media, the world, including the church, has become universally and almost instantaneously digitally self-conscious. We know what's going on everywhere. With this new level of singularity, we have become more and more aware of just how prevalent apostasy is in the church. If I focus on this, I think it's because in the days and in the years to come, I think there will be what I can only describe as a diabolical intensification of apostasy from the church. But such apostates have deceived only themselves. I mean, I think about what just happened recently here with uh, Joshua Harris, who was a very uh, prominent uh, evangelical leader, was leading a big church in the Sovereign Grace Movement, and uh, he and his wife have divorced, and he and his wife, I mean, I don't know if they made a pact or what, but they got together and both came out uh, stipulating that they, that they had renounced their Christian faith, um, listening to the posts that they're putting on social media, led me to write the following, and that is that they may think that they have made a clean little break with their religious past. They may think that they have cut off all Christian affiliations, and so they begin to feel sort of a sense of euphoric release from their conscience. It's no longer burdened with things like righteousness, holiness, and truth. I mean, I was disgusted to read the things that Joshua Harris ironically, who wrote a book back when I was a young Christian, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and then he wrote a lot of other books like that on sexual purity and stuff like that, to now hear him sing the praises of the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And this guy was in the circles of people that we respected, reform circles, C.J. Mahaney, John Piper, names like that, making the rounds. But they think that they have sort of unburdened their conscience, they've unbuckled their conscience to transition into a new phase of life. To rediscover themselves all over again. Oh, and the posts both of, his, of, of Joshua and his wife filled with language of, I'm so excited for life. Excited to see where my new life is going to take me. Art, music, life family, friends. And amazingly, immediately what came to my mind is Jesus. When He said, you must lose your life in order to find it. 
So these people who are rediscovering their life, coming into the newness of their life, trying to grab on to their life, hold on to this life, they have lost their life, actually. The slights in those posts, the way that they describe their apostasy and then the way that they would... And that's what evangelicals would call falling away. You know, that's why I say it's a diabolical intensification of apostasy that's coming. And just when those folks think that they have rid themselves of their obligation to God, amazingly, just when they thought they were done encountering God in their prayer closet, they're going to encounter God on the day of judgment and it will be the most rude awakening they've ever had in their lives. I'll remind you, brothers and sisters, of what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let them be anathema, accursed. So if you have a sense of righteous indignation that wells up within you, and you should, and I'm concerned for you if you don't, if you just say, well, you know, maybe they're going to think, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is you should be angry. Sin, apostasy, the dragging of, through the mud of the name of Jesus. Angry because the honor of God is slighted by these backstabbers of Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a time, hold on, there is a time We'll go back to, oh, but by the grace of God, there we all go, and I'm no better than they are. Got it. But for the moment, let's understand that it's God's glory that was slighted. His honor. And therefore, what I would say to them, if I could look into the camera and talk to them, I would tell them this. The heroin rush of your apostasy is going to be quick and shallow. But the sobriety of God's almighty wrath will be eternal and unfading. Are you really sure you want to go and play around with the world again? Are you really sure you got the best end of the deal here? I don't think so. I think that you have... I think God is saying, here is sweet, satisfying honey from the honeycomb. Jesus... And what you're saying is, I'll eat sand instead. In the name of being real to yourself. As the faithless are humbled to the dust, the faithful are afforded great, glorious, triumphant promises, comfort, consolation. Turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 9. Revelation 14, verse 9. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, 
in the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and His image, whoever receives the mark of His name. Whatever that mark is, the ultimate point is allegiance. Uh, it's the antithesis of having the name of God on you, which means ownership. The beast and the system owns you. But listen to this. Here is the perseverance of the saints. When the hurricane of apostasy is all around us, blinding force winds, blowing everything off of course. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Isn't that remarkable? Yes, says the Spirit. So here the Spirit is directly quoted as saying, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them with them. That, you know what that is? That's exactly what Paul's saying. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All the stuff that we do in the church, in ministry, among one another, all the one another ministries, every time you go to a prayer group, a lady study, a men's study, every time you go to apologetics, every time you go to a, a small group fellowship, every time you come to church and you be like, I need to encourage that person today or stimulate that person to love and good works, every time you do all that, there is a, there is a warfare to that. There is a perseverance. You've got to break through sometimes. I mean, sometimes, you know, y'all are coming to things like the Klein group or the apologetics group. I mean, what do you think I go through? <laughs> sometimes the last thing I want to do is open up Van Til and try to read one paragraph ten times over again so I can explain it to you. There is a mighty warfare involved. But guess what this is saying? What this is saying is one day we're going to rest. Our warfare is over. And now we can enter into that eternal, everlasting Sabbath rest with God. And we will, oh, when we arrive at Canaan's shore, and we look back on our lives, and we look back at the history of our short little history of life, but the life of the church, and we see the corpses of apostates and, and heretics and, 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 and the wicked and the heathen, all oh, just the wasteland of judgment behind us. Can you imagine the sense of triumph? That is a high from which we will never come down. That is a high that we will never come down. Apostasy, going back into the world, reinventing yourself. Yeah, that's a quick, shallow little thrill. It's here, it's gone, it's over. Oh, so shallow. All of this is leading to more, which is next, the universal exaltation of God. I love that phrase about that because it's so universally humbling to everyone, right? Look at verse 11. Back in uh, Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 2.11. The proud look of a man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He alone. If you look at the text, what happens here is that, well, not only does Isaiah repeat the theme over and over again, the Lord will be exalted in a day, verse 11, verse 17. But He will 
arise. He will arise to crush all of the idols of His people and of the world. Verse 18. He will arise to crush the pride of man. Verse 19. He will arise to take away our misplaced hopes and so that uh, uh, the, the things that we trust that are misplaced hopes that we have mistrust, those things will become miserably obsolete. So much so, what does it say? It says that they will cast their idols away to the moles and to the bats. Their gods will be useless. Useless in that hour. It's kind of like the pagans on the boat with Paul, remember, as he's going through the sea there, and they encounter a storm, they're getting ready to die, everyone's freaking out. Right? And everyone's calling out to their God, save me, you know? So they go through the list, you know, Allah, save me, you know, all these false gods going through the list. And they look at Paul and say, call on your God. Maybe he's the one that will answer us here. That's right. You realize that all the faith that you had in that religion was false, was useless, will do nothing for you but heap upon you more miserable judgment. He will rise to make the earth tremble. Verse 21. Now, by the way, when he said that, arise to make the earth tremble, most commentators have suggested is this, is that in the reign of the King Uzziah, of King Uzziah, there was a great earthquake. That earthquake was so great, it's still in the memory of the people. It was devastating. Lots of people died, okay? And so this is what I got from that. Not just the fact that this is probably what Isaiah is talking about. But what I got from that was that, like Isaiah, do not hesitate to use disaster and calamity for our advantage. (laughs) To preach about the wrath of God. So you've heard me talk to kids at university campus. I tell them, look, uh, judgment is like 9-11. Remember 9-11? People leaping to their death from 150 stories. Wow. So it's like that. Only it's going to be infinitely worse because you're going to be leaping into eternity. And a greater judgment awaits you there. That's what we need to be ready to do. Okay. Just as God arose above all the primordial chaos, the darkness, the void of the creation, and He sat sovereign over His creation, Genesis, so too God will arise over the chaos of man's depravity and sit and rule and reign enthroned as King over the new creation. Turn to Isaiah 33, please. Isaiah 33, because it's not surprising to find the language of, well, as Isaiah shifts from Zion to Yahweh, from Zion's exaltation to Yahweh's exaltation, because they are coterminous. They are one and the same. They go together. They happen together. They're inseparable. As Zion is exalted, the kingdom of God, the people of God, heaven so too the king is exalted. And in Isaiah 33, we get a little bit of this theology, and it's all rooted in the, in the messianic dimension of the kingdom, of the kingship of Jesus. Look at verse 17. I preached on this once. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold from a far distant land. And now jump down to verse 20. Here we go. This is... Isaiah synthesizing all of this. Look at Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation. 
talking to a people who see Jerusalem in rubbles. And he's telling them it will be an untouched habitation, pristine preservation, untouched. A tent which will not be folded. That means it's eternal. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, the Lord... Oh, and this is so good, guys. This is so good. The Lord will be for us a place of rivers and wide canals on which... No boat or oar will go. It is unspoiled paradise. And on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord will, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Watch this. He will save us. Isn't that so glorious? Jesus is going to be to us rivers, canals, paradise. It's only paradise because He provides the pleasure. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore, right? And this is what, and this is what people cannot hold on to by faith, so they lose their grip and they stop believing because they don't get it now. See, this is the problem with over-realized eschatology. When you over-realize eschatology, you actually sub-eschatize. Is that a word? Sub-eschatologicalize, whatever. You bring the Bible to a sub-eschaton in your attempt to bring it up to an eschaton. You're actually bringing it down because what is coming in the future is nothing like what we can reconstruct in our culture. Nothing And so the more we think by our effort, politically, whatever, uh, uh, through missions, through the gospel, in this age, if we think we are reconstructing this age, if we think we are building it up into some paradisical, some Christianized, some glorified state, we have de-eschatized the Bible. We have brought it down, not up, ironically. The exaltation of Jesus is exclusive. He alone will be exalted because He alone will save us. Now, let's go to our last verse. Verse 22. Remember I told you, judgment and doom. Almost like in Isaiah over and over. Never the last word. It's like that would be enough, right? God is just. God is righteous. And so He can, if He wishes, just end it at judgment. Just proclaim judgment over the whole world and just leave it there. And we would say, Amen, Lord, you are holy. You are just. Justified when you judge, as Paul says. You are just when you judge. And that would be just fine. But brothers and sisters, you and I have a God that is beyond just that. He is also gracious and long-suffering. His mercy endures forever. The bowels of His goodness go infinitely deep. And because of that, he sets forth the prospect of redemption. And he says to the people that only deserve to have the rocks fall on them, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, 
for why should he be esteemed? When he says that, by implication, what he is saying is, trust me, not man. I mean, any of y'all could come up here and finish the sermon. Why? Because this only reminds us that we, in keeping with our understanding of the gospel, this only reminds us that we need to look outside of ourselves. This is the antithesis. Mark it, write it down, never forget it. This is the antithesis of the spirit of this age. Look outside of yourself, the Bible says. Look to a foreign righteousness. Look to an alien righteousness outside of you. Stop going within for the answers. You've got to look outside. As the Puritans would say, one look to self, ten looks to Christ. Right? Yeah, you look at yourself. Yep. Miserable, wretched, blind, naked, poor. Now look to Christ. Oh, glorious. The riches, unfathomable. Beauty, righteousness, peace, joy. Love and life, that's what you find. So with that, let's go to the last text for today, which is Philippians chapter 3. I can think of no other. I can think of no greater passage of this. Philippians chapter 3, this is where we go from not trusting man to trusting in Christ alone. It comes with some serious requisites. But whatever things were gained to me, Philippians 3, 7, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's the same thing that Jesus said. Lose your life and you will find it. Try to cling on to the stuff that's actually a deficit that you don't see yet, but it really is. Try to hold on to your life. Try to preserve your life in this world. You lose it. Guaranteed to lose it. More than that, Paul says, I count everything to be lost. Beautiful. Beyond his own personal experience, Paul is saying, uh-uh, it's not just because of me. I just gave you my testimony, verses 1 through 6. I just gave you my testimony. But even if you don't fall in the category of my testimony, okay? Paul was a church kid. Grew up in the church his whole life, right? Maybe you weren't that. Maybe you're opposite of Paul. You're total heathen from day one. <laughs> so what is Paul saying? Okay, even if you don't fall into my camp, I count everything as lost. There's not a single thing you can offer him. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Oh, you guys, there is so much in there. I've suffered the loss of all things. I mean, God, and that happens a lot, and even in the church, right? God strips you down. You lose everything. Uh, sometimes you come to Christ, and, and you lose it all. Your friends, your family, your spouse, your health, uh, your, your job. Uh, you could get stripped down to nothing, to the place where, like Jacob, all you can do is, cling. And then you find out that's where you belong. And Paul is saying, so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Oh, that's so good. And so the question coming back to us, brothers and sisters, is are we hidden in Christ? If we're hidden in Christ, then we are secure. We are eternally secure. We're secure from final falling. But even practically, let's ask ourselves the questions that Isaiah wanted the nation to ask themselves. Where's our hope? What are we trusting in? What are we relying on? What is it that we aspire to? Are we aspiring to the temporal Are we aspiring to things that were never meant to fulfill us anyway? So when those things are taken away, be it monetarily, materially, familial things, all those things, when those things are taken away, was your hope, was your trust there? You'll know it when you fall flat on your face. My advice to you when you fall flat on your face is, by faith, get up again and set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of, of your faith. Let's pray. Father, how can one sermon possibly account for the reality that the Lord alone will be exalted? How can one message possibly, even finitely, grasp the exaltation and the glory and the honor. No wonder angels must forever sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because a trillion sermons can't do it. And our praise still falls short. Because God, You will be exalted and when You are exalted on that day, The great comfort for us is that you will put everything right. And so, Lord, may we have the kingdom interest that you have. May we be focused on what you're focused on, Lord. May we be the tools, the vessels. May we be the means that you use, Lord, to build your people, your church, your kingdom, to save the lost, to preach the lost, to reach our neighbor, friend, family for the gospel. Lord, we want to see the people around us that we love redeemed. We don't want to see them fall under the terror and under the judgment of God. How terrible it is, O God. Have mercy, O God. Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.